Welcome to episode number 35 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. It's great to be back after a long summer hiatus and a big move. My wife and I sold up in Ontario and moved to Invermere, British Columbia. It's a bit of a drive, some 3,700 kilometers, but well worth it. Invermere is in the Columbia Valley, and it's renowned for its fabulous soaring conditions. I had a great intro flight with Trevor Florence in its duo Discus last October. He took me on a three-hour sightseeing flight over my new home gliding terrain. My main takeaway, I will need to proceed slowly and cautiously to become a safe and proficient mountain pilot. I'm also in the middle of forming an ASH-31MI syndicate with three other pilots. So next year will be a big gliding year for me, mountain flying in a new-to-me self-launching glider. I'm very excited. Now back to this edition of the podcast. The first story is about a record-breaking cross-country flight from Alaska to Tasmania. It's not on the OLC, but only because the pilot is of the feathered variety. We also go to Scotland and get the inside scoop from wave hunter Sant Cervantes. And we go to Holland where we learn about a very special K-8 that's now a flying work of art. Stained glass, to be precise. That's all on episode number 35 of The Thermal. Glider pilots have major milestones when they fly across country and earn bragging rights for spectacular flights. Do you remember your first 50-kilometer flight? Maybe you've got a 500-kilometer flight under your belt. But what we do in gliders is nothing compared to what one intrepid feathered aviator, a young godwit, which is a gangly waiting bird, that has set a new world record for the longest non-stop flight by any bird. The juvenile bar-tailed godwit flew from Alaska to northeast Tasmania, Australia, via a route stretching at least 13,560 kilometers. And this bird did it in 11 days and one hour, arriving on October 24th. To get a better understanding of how remarkable this is, I reached Eric Verler. He's the convener of BirdLife Tasmania, and he's in Hobart, Tasmania. Eric, thanks for coming on and telling us about this fantastic flight. Oh, good morning. It's a pleasure. So tell me the story of this remarkable flight and, and how you were able to track this bird. So this is truly a remarkable story of migration in nature. Um, there's been a long-term study involving uh, researchers from New Zealand uh, with international partners in, the U- in Germany, um, UK, uh, China, U.S., and essentially, um, they've fitted uh, a satellite tracking um, to a number of these birds over the last 10 or so years. Essentially, I mean, everyone's familiar with the, the GPS chip in, yeah. their, in their phone that tells them where they are. So imagine a GPS chip with a solar panel that's about one centimetre square sitting on the back of this bird with a little antenna sticking out so it can talk to the satellites. No kidding. And this bird... That's, I mean, seriously, that's as small as we're talking about. Something, it's smaller than your thumbnail. It's a tiny huh. little thing. Because th- these birds travel so far, we need to make these devices as small as possible so they have the least impact on the bird's flight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course. And so, and we know that these birds um, are long distance migrants. Um, these are, there are a, a, a range of 50 or more species of shorebirds that breed in the Northern Hemisphere and come to Australia and New Zealand. And the majority of these birds fly down the east coast of Asia. So mm-hmm. coming down through China, Korea, Japan, through Singapore, Indonesia, into Australia and New Zealand. And that's one of nine major migration corridors, mm-hmm. what we call flyways around the planet. Right. And um, we, we know that there are birds that migrate from breeding grounds in the Northern Hemisphere, typically up in the Arctic, and in many cases up in the tundra, down to Australia and New Zealand to avoid the northern winters. And the godwit is one of these species. The bartail godwit is one of these species. But, but what, I'm going to interrupt so for a second. Ago, sorry, what, yeah. what makes this so unique, however, is that this bird did it in one flight, right? Yeah. And so about 10 or so years ago... Um, when the first package was ever put on a bar-tailed godwit, um, it was expected before the the um, 
before the results were known. We knew the birds bred in Alaska and, and in the Arctic in Siberia, and then we know they turned up in Australia and New Zealand, and it was assumed that these birds would hop, skip, and jump across the atolls and islands and, and across the Pacific doing a series of jumps because the physiologists, the behavioural ecologists, whatever, had said essentially that these birds could fly no more than about seven or 8,000 kilometres based on our understanding of muscle physiology, fat, use and all the rest of it. Yeah, you've got to and eat and, and rest bird, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and if you if you if you weigh too much when you try and take off, you're not going to take off. Yeah. Like yeah. overloading with fuel with an aircraft. Yes. But this is the thing. It's it's and and it's the balance between having just enough fuel to get you where you want to go with a you know a, a whisker left as a reserve because otherwise you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And when the first bird um was tracked, lo and behold it flew from the Aleutian Islands to New Zealand non-stop in around about nine or ten days. It mm. lost half its body mass in that time, and it did it without landing on a single atoll. And if they can't land on the water because they don't have the webbing in the feet, so this is you know, it, it, once a bird commits to the flight, it, it's committed. And you know, if you like, the point of no return is the point when it departs um, because it, once it gets going, it gets going. And so, so over the years, you know, yeah. So this one broke the record because it went from Alaska all the way to Tasmania. Yeah, so we, we we still don't know how representative this bird is of the greater you know behavior in the in the population because the number of birds that have been tracked is still relatively low. So it may be that five percent, ten percent, or twenty percent of the birds do what this bird has done, and it just so happens that this is the first first bird that's been tracked doing it. But yeah, so the the previous record was a flight from Alaska to New Zealand, was about thirteen thousand kilometres in eleven days, and this bird um, was tracking a little bit to the to the west of, if you like, the you know the point to point flight line, and it was in the middle of the Tasman Sea, halfway between Tasmania and um, and New Zealand, and did a turn uh, to the to the west and found the east coast or the northeast coast of Tasmania. And in so doing, add another 560 kilometres to what we had thought was, you know, pretty much the extreme limit of what these birds can do. And in so doing, it meant that we have to go back and think again about just how far these birds can actually fly. Now, now as glider pilots, we use thermals, we use wave, we use ridge soaring, all sorts of Mother Nature mm-hmm. weather th- systems to be able to stay aloft. How did this godwit? I mean, I can't imagine it's flapping its wings the entire distance. It is indeed. It's it's not a it's not a soaring, gliding bird like an albatross. It's hmm. a bird that basically is powered flight the whole way through. So no kidding. Um, you know, we we don't know, as far as I'm aware, still with the technology, at what elevation these birds fly. But when we've tracked larger shorebirds approaching you know, double the weight of, of a godwit, it seems that these birds are flying relatively low, so certainly under 5,000 metres and often uh, under 500 metres because we now realise that if they go up too high in the atmosphere, um, there's temperature issues to work with as well. I mean, it gets progressively colder higher up into the atmosphere. And so the birds have to spend energy on thermoregulation above and beyond the flight and migration uh, requirements. Um, we do know that some birds fly, um, there are, uh, I think it's geese that fly over the Himalayas. So these mm-hmm. birds are tracking at you know, 10, 10 plus thousand metres. You, you would think um, these birds doing... would also have uh, problems with uh, hypoxia if they get too high. Well, remember that birds have a very sophisticated um, air, what we call an air sac system. So they have the regular lungs, but then they have air sacs or bladders in their body. And they also have hollow bones, pneumatic bones, Mm. as an adaptation to flight. And so they have a much more efficient use of the oxygen that is present in the air that they inhale. um, And that their metabolic rate is a little bit warmer, a little bit higher than ours. And so their core body temperature is closer to 40 degrees Celsius this is, if you like, for the average bird. Yeah. Um, so their body core temperature is just a little bit higher than ours and they're more efficient at extracting the oxygen out of the air that they inhale. So, again, these are all these adaptations that birds have uh, evolved over time to 
maximise or to to ensure they can either fly farther or fly longer or fly higher or, or whatever it is that they do mm-hmm. in terms of flight. But these are all you know, adaptations around this loss of weight and an ability to fly. Huh, cool. Now, I should have asked this it earlier, is, but can, can you describe the godwit to me and how it got its name? Um, I, I don't know how it got its name. I, 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 I've heard them calling, so I, it's not one of these birds that, um, was it Eponymous, that um, the, the birds that, you know, like a curlew that is named after its call. Um, the godwit is a, is a medium-sized shorebird. It has longish legs and a long, slightly upturned bill. Um, probably weighs around 250 to 300 grams most of the time. It'll bulk up. Um, so that's a small uh, bird. Ahead of the, um, uh, well, I mean, it, it's like it's a sandpiper, yeah, right? I mean, it's a it's a shorebird that that it's bigger, it, like no, a plover. It's bigger, bigger than the sandpiper. It's so I'm just trying to think what um, think of something probably body size something around something like kildee or something like that. Okay, okay. So it, it's it's okay. if you like, there's there's sort of you know size categories of shorebirds, and so your sandpipers and 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 your little peeps are the smallest of the birds. The godwits are sort of in the middle category, and then you've got the the really big guys, the wimbrels and the curlews and things. So it's it's medium size, you know, shorebird. Hmm. And um, as I said, long, slightly upturned bill, and the classic paradigm in ecology for avoiding competition is the different combination of leg length and bill lengths allow different shorebirds to feed on the same beach or the same foreshore without competing with each other because. The birds with longer legs and longer bills can feed farther out into the water, whereas the birds with the shorter legs and shorter beaks <laughs> have to feed on the water's edge or on the beach. You know, I, this is such a great story, and I'm so happy to talk to you about this because, you know, as as glider pilots, we have a, a symbiotic relationship with birds. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've been up and I, I'm getting low, I'm looking for a thermal, and there's a big fat seagull flying in circles, you know. <laughs> they, they they saved our butts so many times. Yeah, um, and and there's certainly lots of records here. I mean, we've got we've got a gliding group here in Tasmania, up in the in the central midlands of Tasmania, and um, there's lots of stories of of the pilots flying out there with um, with eagles. Uh, yeah. We have a we have a large eagle, a wedge-tailed eagle, which has got about a 2.2 to 2.4 meter wingspan. And um, we've got, you know, pilots telling stories of them being up, you know, flying, gliding at um, over the Midlands, and um, you know, having close encounters with with our wedge-tailed eagles. So, yeah, it's certainly something that, you know, again, it just reinforces yeah. how much we, a, we have already learned from nature, but you know, this bird tells us also there's still more we have to learn from nature. But from what you've told me about the, the godwit, it, it's unlikely that I'm going to encounter a godwit in a thermal. No, no, no. These birds are, you know, they, <laughs> when they set off, they set off. Um, it's interesting when you're looking at the, um, the satellite tracks for this particular bird, it, um, uh, it was actually headed from the Yukon Delta uh, in a southwesterly direction. It was actually heading, if you like, the orientation was towards Japan. And then when it crossed the Aleutian Islands, uh, it's almost like it did a bit of a ground check and realised, oops, I'm too far to the west, <laughs> and reoriented and reoriented to to more southerly uh, orientation in its flight or direction in its flight, and then flew pretty much south uh, west of the Hawaiian uh, archipelago down through uh, the Central Pacific, then over New Caledonia, and then down off the east coast of Australia, as I said, until it got to the middle of the uh, the Tasman Sea between Tasmania and New Zealand, and then turned left. I suspect the... Um, sorry, turned right and, and uh, headed west towards Tasmania. I suspect that may well have been... Um, that abrupt turn in the flight was probably a function of... Um, we had some very deep, low-pressure systems, which in the Southern Hemisphere um, give us... Now, I have to make sure that I get this right because you're a pilot... So low-pressure systems in the in the southern hemisphere are clockwise circulation, and I suspect the bird probably got caught up in one of these deep low-pressure systems uh, or low-pressure cells. That, and kicked um, further west. You know, it, it took advantage. Well, it just took it. It took advantage of the prevailing winds and um, allowed it to, to travel a little bit farther. I suspect. Now, were you, the, you know, tracking this in real time? Close. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, were, I mean, there were a number of us keeping an eye on this bird because um, uh, the the track was uh, being provided virtually in real time uh, via uh, uh, the Max Planck Institute in Germany, and um, uh, we got very excited when it was halfway, as I said, in the Tasman Sea, halfway between Tasmania and New Zealand, and we saw a very abrupt uh, turn to the west. And the expectation was that it would land somewhere in, uh, so in the east, on the east coast of Tasmania. Mm. Um, Bato Godwitz are found throughout Tasmania's east coast, northeast, northwest, and on the Australian mainland as well. So it was a case of okay, the birds coming to, to Australia slash Tasmania rather than New Zealand, and we're going to try and get out and try and find the bird to see. Because the interest was not only just to see the bird and look at the condition of the bird, but also to to get a sense of how big the flock was that the bird flew, yeah, mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. its um, compatriots came along. We know that the birds, the youngsters, don't fly with the parents. The parents and the and the youngsters fly at different times, so it's not like you know the youngster flies with its parents to learn the route. This bird, you know, flew the the flight from Alaska to Tasmania. 13,500 kilometres, that was its first long-distance flight as a five-month-old bird. Wow. And so the idea was, did it fly with other juveniles? Was it a solo flight? We don't know. And so um, the idea was to try and head up, you know, to where we could, you know, judge the bird might be. Uh But we've had some pretty atrocious weather. We've had some very wet spring weather. Yes, I've seen that in the news, lots of flooding. Yeah, and so we've had roads closed, we've had bridges closed, and so getting into the area where the bird was recorded landing wasn't possible, and the people that live in the area couldn't get out because the roads were closed. Um, and so the intention or the interest in, in getting to the the arrival area and looking for the bird was thwarted by, by the weather conditions. Mm-hmm. But um, there's... there's uh, a group of us that are sort of just keeping an eye on the Godwick flocks up in that north east corner of Tasmania. And um, I'm actually heading up that way tomorrow and uh, Thursday, spend a bit of time with a telescope and, and uh, some camera gear. The bird will be relatively, uh, I mean, obviously it's a juvenile, so we can pick up on the on the plumage. But to see if I can pick up that aerial, I mean, you're talking about something <laughs> that the aerial is not much thicker than a, than a pencil lead sticking out from the back of the um, from the back of the bird, so I can talk to the satellites. Um, yeah, it, it might be a challenge, but it's a fun thing to spend a bit of time looking for this bird. You know, this is a, such a cool story, Eric. Thank you so much for telling us about this. And I can tell you, a lot of my fellow glider pilots will be absolutely fascinated that you know by by the details <laughs> of this story. It's an amazing cross country. Well, I'd look, I look. I think it's I think it's a remarkable story, and I think. Yeah, it, it just reinforces that um, we don't need to distort or exaggerate or misrepresent what birds do because what they do is so remarkable that it just the, the telling alone is sufficient to generate that interest and wonder in their achievements. Absolutely. Eric, thank you again. A pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Good old cheers. Bye. BirdLife Tasmania convener Eric Verler spoke to me from Hobart, Tasmania. What do most of the record-breaking pilots you hear on the thermal have in common? Almost all of them use SkySight, the fabulous weather app designed with glider pilots in mind. If you want to learn more about how this weather app works, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on episode number seven. For listeners of the thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. San Cervantes belongs to an elite group of glider pilots who are known as the Scottish Wave Hunters. He often posts fabulous photos and stories of flights made in the skies over Scotland. The scenery there is spectacular, but some of the long, record-breaking flights over hostile territory aren't for the faint of heart. Sand flies out of the Scottish Gliding Centre in Port Moak, roughly 50 kilometres northwest of Edinburgh. 
I've reached him at home in Blair Gallery, Scotland. Hello, Santa. Nice to meet you on the telephone. I'm the same. Now, I've watched your posts over the years with Envy, and, you know, the, the wave flights that are happening up in Scotland are pretty spectacular. How has this year been? Uh, this year's been uh, poor. Um, having said that, we've had uh, 31 wave days uh, up until today, um, and that's just basically for when I say a wave day where people have soared above 6,000 feet. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that um, that's greater than average, because. but I think that one of the reasons for it is uh, Alistair Much, one of our pilots at Port Moak, has got himself a self-launcher and he flies off at every opportunity. But normally, uh, I think you can look at, you can look at, 15 days where you can get cross countries of over 200 kilometers. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get about 15 thermal days. But I mean, this year has been quite poor. Um, the South thermal wise has had a fantastic year, but we, we, we've only, we've only managed one 750 uh, this year, which, uh, um, you know, is, is, is normally, normally you get quite a few more than that. So the geography and, and the way Scotland is situated Describe to me the, the ideal weather pattern that sets up wave in your part of the world. Well, basically what you want is uh, a high pressure off to the uh, uh, off to the southwest of the UK. I mean, um, um, uh, Jean-Marie Clement uh, described it as the Irma curve. So if the uh, jet stream is is in, in such a position that uh, we get a northwesterly, I would say that that's... Uh, that's classic conditions mm -hmm. uh, for for Port Moak. For a Boyne, what you want is southwesterlies, which is the prevailing flow that we've actually got at the moment. And um, but basically, what you want is warm air, um, straight isobars, um, and uh, a, a decent inversion. I mean, that's 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 the basic parameters. And and what about the the mountain ranges that they bounce the, the the wave bounces off in, in in Scotland? How high are these? Are they significant? The mountains aren't high, but because of the locks, um, you get it, if you've got the wind blowing across a a, a valley, right, and it hits hits the uh, it, it it is bounced by the um, by the lock, which is nice and smooth. Mm -hmm. Then you get some terrific wave. Um, and it's just a matter of the wind being aligned across uh, across the uh, valleys. But the actual terrain is really, uh, you've got to be quite careful because like if you fly in the Rockies or if you fly, um, you know, in, in, in New Zealand, you've got big peaks and big valleys. Whereas in Scotland, what you've got is this flattish terrain, which are mountainous, but it's, it's you know, it's usually about three and a half thousand feet high. Right. Uh, with valleys. So you've got you, outlanding is the, the options aren't that uh, huge. No, they're not. Um, no, they're not. So you really have to you really have to plan that because um, uh, luckily um, a chap at a Boyne uh, a few years ago uh, did a database and Phil Doland, who's actually in New Zealand at the moment as we speak, um, he updated the uh, database, the field database. Uh, and so it's it's one of the one of the things that prevents or restricts people flying is, is you've got to be quite you've got to be quite careful, um, you know, in, in in penetrating or going into into the hills. And having options, I mean, that's again where modern technology makes such a difference. You know, you don't have a map and a, and a wheel in your hand and trying to figure something out in the cockpit while the conditions are worsening you you now look at your gps and you know whether you've got you know glide angle into a, a, a remote field if things don't work out right yeah uh i mean gps is gps is as revolutionized wave soaring in, in in scotland i mean yeah the first flight uh across to uh, uh northern ireland was in 1963 by by a port moat pilot and uh, promptly followed uh, um uh, shortly afterwards by uh um a New Zealand chap um, flying from uh, Ballykelly to Crane Larrick, which is near Loch Tay. Loch Tay is one of the big instigators for WAVE. Hmm. Um, and, and GPS has revolutionised, uh, uh, revolutionised, uh, 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 
you know, wave soaring because you know where you are. Because yeah. one of the problems with Scotland is the amount of cloud. I mean, you know, and and you have to deal with that. And what what about clearances? Do you guys have a good relationship with uh, ATC? Yeah, we do. Uh, luckily, in Scotland, we we don't have that much airspace. Um, I'm responsible for uh, requesting no terms. We have an agreement uh, which has been set up uh, by the BGA, um, and basically, um, what we can do is uh, if we if we uh, uh, put in a no term the day before, um, we can be allowed to fly above flight level 100. Um, up to flight level 195 mm -hmm. uh, and so you know I, I usually do that I put one in for tomorrow for example and and so I keep an eye on it I'm usually up between five and half past six every day looking at it yeah. uh, you know <laughs> a bit of a fanatic really but there we are no but it's great every club or area of the world needs somebody that does this sort of stuff because it allows us to to go and explore and get these flights well, absolutely. I mean, well, um, I've got a transponder now, so mm -hmm. so I don't really have to bother. But there's a lot of chaps that don't, and yeah. uh, you, you've got to give them the opportunity, particularly visitors and all this sort of stuff. You know, we we, we still get a lot of visitors coming up to a Boyne and and Portmoat and and Feshy Bridge for that matter. Right. And uh, we've also got wave boxes where you can go up to um, flight level two, four, five, mm -hmm. and you know, well, for example. Uh, Alistair March this year has uh, most probably won the De Havilland Trophy because he's just uh, he 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 just touched didn't quite touch thirty thousand this year and that was if I remember correctly in June so hmm. we get wave all year round basically. So to describe a typical sort of wave flight for me out of Port Moak, do you have to you know you're just north of Edinburgh you're near a lake do you do you have to get a high aero tow what what does a normal wave day look like? Wow. Well, uh, a normal wave day. Uh, that's that's interesting. I, I don't think there is such a thing as a normal wave day. Each each day is different. Um, I'm a great advocate of using aero toes. I mean, what I'll do is I'll take an aero toe to 5,000 feet. And the reason why I take it to 5,000 feet is, you know, let's assume it's the northwester, which is our classic, which is our classic wave conditions at Port Moat. Uh, and, and what I'll do is I'll just see how many wave bars, because sometimes, you know, you can see them, other times you can't. And I'll see how many wave bars there are as I'm progressing. That gives me an indication of, 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 of what's actually going on. And that varies, you know. Um, basically, I try to aim for uh, Creef, methylene area, which uh, across the uh, across the Vale. And uh, that's right, usually so some of our spot. listeners are going to have to get their Google Maps out to figure out where some of yeah, these areas yeah. are. But it's easy to yeah. do. Yeah. Easy to figure but out I mean, where you're talking about. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry about that. But, no, uh, no, it's radio. This is how we do yeah. it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, from a Boyne, a Boyne's totally different because a Boyne has a, a classically shaped hill called Morven. And a Boyne's about 30 miles to the west of uh, Aberdeen. And they have this uh, beautiful, beautiful hill that is a terrific instigator of, uh, of wave. And, um, and you literally, you know, more often than not, just tow to in the lee of that hill. And that, that'll give you diamond height, huh. literally within four miles from the club. It's, huh. you know, a Boyne, uh, you know, it is, well, I, I would say that a Boyne is actually, a Boyne is a very special place. I mean, Port Moak is good, but uh, I, I think a Boyne is special. Um, by European standards. I mean, the sort of thing that gets me is 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 that um, for a small country, uh, it's why I live in Scotland. Uh, for for a small country, uh, it's why I live here. Uh, is is that sometimes we get these exceptional conditions, not not just wave but thermal as well. Uh, you know, in the summer uh, and. Uh -huh. uh, you, know, you talk about those exceptional conditions. Now, I was reading something online, and it's a story about one of the flights you had. It was and, and it was talking about turning a mythical turn point, and you did this on the same day as three other pilots. What what was this flight about? Uh, well, uh, there's this turn point called Tongue, which is on the southern coast. It's a it's a it's a cave net. It's 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 right up on the north coast, and uh, it's it's um, 
is to the uh, west of Cape Wrath. And I mean, you know, the very the very term Cape Wrath is evocative. Yeah, it certainly and, is. And, uh, you know, and the thing about Scotland is it, geologically it's a very old country. And flying over Scotland, sometimes you look at the landscape and it, it's, it, it almost looks primeval. And, you know, particularly... I mean, I'm, I used to be a commercial pilot and, and I used to fly over the flow country, which is which is on the east side up at the top to the uh, west of Wick, which is on the uh, right up the top, um, you know, close to the Orkneys. So it's 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 one of the most northerly towns in, in Britain. And, and the landscape is primeval. And 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 it's obviously if you're flying in, the, it's a matter of perspective. Um, but for for Britain, it, it's quite remote, um, not by American or, or... No, but remote is remote in that part of the world. I've been up there. It's, it's, yeah. it's, the, it's not highly populated, and uh, distances between villages can be great. And if you have to land out somewhere up there and something happens, you're a long ways away from any help. You are. And, uh, and so that's where the planning comes in. But, um, I mean, the, the person... The person that's led that is John Williams, mm -hmm. and and uh, as a result of that, we we follow and Roy Wilson up at the Boeing, um, and to me, it's it's the other thing is. But you that, made this turn point. You did it. Uh, well, no, this was this was uh, this John John. I think well, it was maybe Kevin Hook uh, between the pair of them. Kevin Hook was a, a very good glider pilot in the uh, uh, in, in the nineties and the two thousands, um, and they yeah we just made the waypoint or they made the waypoint. And uh, but you see, you know, there are pilots that are explorers, um, and there are pilots that uh, I, I tend to fall into the category of. Uh, I'm a bit more pragmatic. I, I let people go and discover things and make sure it's okay. And then if it's uh, all right, I'll have a bash. But, I'm, um, I'm the same way. I feel the same you know, way. Yeah. Yeah. But that said, you've you've had you've got a number of UK records. I understand, right? Yeah, I've, I've got uh, I've got six. I've, I've got um, nothing to sneeze uh, at. Uh, well, I've got the. Uh, uh, hundred. Well, I, I I go for the low hanging fruit, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm trying to improve upon it. But uh, I've got uh, I've got it written down somewhere. Let me have a look. Uh, what have I got? Um, yeah, I've got these in the standard class: the 100k triangle and the 100k goal, uh, the 200k triangle, and the 300k out and return. And also in the 15 meter class, the 200k triangle and the 300 out and return. So, so that's six. But I mean, that's that's taken over two classes. I mean, what I really want to go for is is the 500 out and return, which is to tongue. Mm -hmm. um, and when we, I mean, I, I got to tongue last year, which I've obviously written about in S and G. Uh, that's and there was still played in magazine for some of our listeners yeah. who don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, there was four of us last year that that, um, uh, that 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 got up there again. There's only been about nine pilots that have got up there, uh, and um, uh, it's it is it is <laughs> an interesting place. So and, what, what, um, what is your ride? What are you what are you flying uh, right now? I've got a discus. I've got a discus uh, turbo. Okay. So it's 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 my gliders. Uh, uh, 30, 38 years old, I think it is. Nineteen eighty-nine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thirty-one years old. Yeah, there we it's, go. A good, 30, it's a good quality years. ship and does the job. So, well, this is it. But you don't need you don't need a hot ship um, because the conditions are so strong. Um, you don't need a hot ship. I mean, what you do need is one that that can, um, you know, the winds can be. Once they start going above 70 knots, it starts to become a little bit difficult at altitude once the wind speed's above 70. Mm -hmm. And so you, you want, ideally, you want a, a glider with a high-end performance. And the discus, the discus uh, tends to run out of puff, which is, it's the first glider that I've flown that, it's the first glider that I've flown that, uh, whereby it's actually starting to limit my performance. All gliders that I've had before, there was always more performance than, than I was capable of extracting from it. But I, I think I've reached it with, with the discus. Um, and, you know, once you get to 120 knots, we're talking about cruise speeds. 
um, it starts to fall off a cliff, really. Right. And ideally, the speed. I, I I work on I work on flying along at. Well, if you take the average lift in the UK, it's about three knots. And at three, if if I'm flying along in three knots up, then that's uh, I'm doing a speed of 94 knots, and um, uh, and that's my optimum. I've got a glide angle of one in 30 at that speed. So you've been so able that's to, the you've been able to break some records in this glider, and you you obviously fly it extremely well. Well, I, I don't think so. I, I I think flying is, I think wave flying is essentially easy actually. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, thermal soaring, I think, is in certain ways uh, a wee bit more difficult. The, the thing that the thing that you've got to be careful about in, in wave soaring is you can dig yourself a hole very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you've really you've really got to have your uh, get out of jail card. Uh, you don't have one option. You should never be down. You should never be down to just having one option left. You, you, you know, I mean, turbo, uh, it's a turbo, but I, I just use the turbo to get me to and from the lift as required. Um, and, uh, you know, you really got to be within uh, within uh, reaching distance. Let's put it that way of a suitable landing area. I'm taking I your mean, advice to heart because I'm a, a, a new a newbie when it comes to flying in mountains and wave flying and all these little tidbits I'm I'm doing my best to remember and not note down and pay attention to. Well, don't depend upon the engine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, that that's really it. I mean, the problem is, is if you've been flying at altitude, uh, the engine gets cold soaked. I mean, I've had it where it's taken me uh, a long time to start an engine. And I normally, um, you know, once once it's obvious that the wave has disappeared or something like that, it's better to start if you need to start the engine to get home. Um, you know, because I'm an old man now and I'm fed up with landing in fields. Um, you know, uh, it 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 is wise to do it earlier rather than later because uh, the engines do can they can get quite cold. Hey, before I let you go, tell tell me a bit. How did you get into gliding in the first place? Well, I started gliding when I was 17 mm-hmm. and uh, in the air training corps, which okay. uh, enabled me to have a, a, a flying career. Um, I got a flying scholarship and uh, and so on. And I became tug pilot at Nymphsfield, uh, where I did my silver distance. And uh, I took a K-8 up to uh, a Boyne, a correction, up to Port Moak in 1973 and got my gold height, went up with Robbie Robertson. And uh, from oh, I think I've spoken to Robbie Robertson on this podcast. He's the artist. Yeah, yeah. Well, Robbie, Robbie, yeah. We both took this K8 up, and we both got our gold height. And I fell in love with Scotland. So, as I said earlier, I always try and fit my job around gliding. So I thought I'm living in Scotland, <laughs> and uh, basically I instructed in Scotland, you know, power-wise uh, from '74 to '76. Had to go abroad a bit, uh, but then in '78. Flew from uh, a Boyne up until 88, and then I had to go down south with my job, which I regret, <laughs> and uh, basically started uh, uh, flying again in 2000 out of, out of Port Moat. And so for the last uh, 20 years, I've been flying out of Port Moat. Good for you. Now, you, you mentioned that the 500-kilometer out-and-return record is on your wish list. Is there anything else uh, you still want to achieve up there in your... In your... Oh, yeah. I want my 1,000K. Yeah, yeah. I, that's the big one. Absolutely. Yeah. I want that, and it, you know, and and it, I'm not being funny about it. It's just a matter of being ready on the right day. It doesn't happen that often, and you know, if you're lucky, it's once a year. Uh, we haven't had the opportunity this year, but no, I want the thousand k. I and I certainly hope you get it. Oh, thank you. It, it's it's been a, a pleasure speaking with you, Sant, and and getting an idea of what it's like to fly up in your part of the world, and. Uh, yeah, really, really appreciate you telling uh, us about uh, what it's like to, to fly up there. Well, it's great. You want to come across? <laughs> I do. I'll come back. Like I mentioned to you, I did fly a yeah, Bolsian well, at Port Moak some yeah. 35 years ago. So, yeah. yeah, it's time to go back for a visit. Okay, good. Listen, it's been a pleasure. Take care. And you. Bye. Bye. Scottish wave hunter Sant Cervantes spoke to me from Blair Gallery, Scotland. <laughs> 
The Thermal Podcast is proud to support the Made in Canada automated task scoring platform, Proving Grounds. Developed by a team from the QNIM Gliding Club in Alberta, it's designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into true cross-country soaring pilots. And it really works. Proving Grounds has proven hugely successful and is now in use in Canada, Europe, the United States, and New Zealand. Check out episode number 15 of The Thermal, where I interviewed co-founder Patrick McMahon. For more information, go to their website, which is SoaringTasks.com. That's SoaringTasks.com. There are probably thousands of old and forgotten gliders hidden away in hangars and trailers around the world. Sometimes they wind up on a pole as a weather vane. Sometimes they wind up on a bonfire. But more often than not, they just slowly rot away. But that's not the case with a vintage K-8 glider that Dutch pilot and stained-glass artist Tolne Boomer has rescued and transformed into a flyable glider that's covered in leaded glass. I've reached Tolne at his home in Lemele, the Netherlands. Hello, Tolne. This is uh, obviously an extremely special glider. Can you, can you describe it to me? I bought in 19, no, sorry, in 2015 uh, a glider big uh, K8B in Germany, and it was fully completed, inclusive all the paperwork. And I bought it, I uh, brought it to uh, Holland, and when I was going forward with it, I thought perhaps it's possible to make a, a, a real uh, glider in steel glass body and the wings uh, transparent and perhaps I can manage it uh, on such a way that it can fly it afterwards when it's ready and I started to uh, dismantle it the the, the skin uh, went off and in place of that skin from uh, linen and, yeah, the fabric, uh, and, and the, the the uh, whatever fabric yes, they yes, had on the, it. Yeah. The fabric. In, in in place of that, I made the glass and lead. Oh, is it and literally so glass? Is it really glass and lead? It's it's literally glass and lead. Huh. So I had uh, uh, with making the the, the video uh, for two weeks ago, I had a little accident. Uh, the, the 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 body. Uh, fell uh, on site, and I have uh, three, four little glass windows destroyed, so I have to re repair it. But that's all possible. Mm -hmm. You take the old glass out, and you take the and you bring new glass in, and then it's uh, new again. Mm -hmm. It's really glass, really lead, and for that reason, the plane has gone heavier with 100 kilograms. Yeah, I was just gonna say so. What does that do for the center of gravity and the airworthiness of this glider? Yeah, and to to manage that problem from 100 kilograms, you have to calculate all the, the, the pieces of glass, the weight of it, and all the pieces of lead, also the weight of it, to compare it with the reference position on the wing, Mm -hmm. uh, what will what will be the weight uh, two meters before the reference uh, point, and what will be the weight of the glass and lead behind the reference point? Right, you're, to, you're, to you're, get... you're talking about a weight and balance exercise to find the center of gravity. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You you have to you have to uh, to make the the weight and balance uh, uh, exactly within the position of not. Uh, heavy, uh, have uh, 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 a heavy nose or a heavy tail. Right. And when you can manage that, um, I make um, I, I made uh, calculations about the lift possibilities of the wings, mm -hmm. and uh, it turned out uh, in in the original state the airplane lift off at sixty two kilometers per hour airspeed. Mm -hmm. But when the, with the extra 100 kilograms on weight, it will it should be lift off at 72 kilometers per hour airspeed. Mm -hmm. Also, so that's all uh, newer. Uh, it's uh, 10 
10 kilometers more speed to lift the extra 100 uh, kilograms. Right. And the stall speed has and, probably gone up as well. And yeah. Yeah. The stall speed has also gone up in, in, the, in the same range. So uh, we did uh, some uh, trying on the airfield to, to, to drive with a car uh, pulling the, the, the airplane Auto behind yeah. and, uh, and let one wing uh, touch uh, the ground mm -hmm. so I could uh, control if the, the glass was uh, uh, tight uh, to the body. So the, the glass and the lead didn't, doesn't fall out when you have uh, a quick start from uh, 70 kilometers per hour on the grass. Okay. And uh, it turned out there was no twinkling of glass in the airplane at all. It <laughs> was steady and no sounds of wrinkling glass. It was good. And then we made uh, 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 more speed just uh, to to get to the point from 70 kilometers per hour and do the the plane stayed nicely straight with his tail from the ground uh, just if nothing and no, nothing was changed on the plane right so you're, so, you're basically testing it on the ground because technically I, you, the dutch authorities haven't given you permission to fly it right yeah, the Dutch uh, authorities did not have uh, given uh, permission to fly. I, I am ready to ask a permission to fly. Mm -hmm. uh, it 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 should be happened uh, in 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 nineteen, but then Corona came and uh, I thought no hurry, no hurry, no hurry. Uh, just uh, uh, take it easy. There will be a time the airplane can. Uh, uh, make his his first flight of an, an, an artist plane. Now, what what do you think the, the chances are of the Dutch authorities giving you permission of getting the the flight certificate for this aircraft? I I think they will give me permission because I I can I ask it uh, to to have a, a special reason mm -hmm. and and that's a record it never happened. Um, uh, an artist piece of glass and lead was free in the air. Yeah, it always it it always stays on the floor or on a on 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 a, on a thing, or it hangs uh, uh, in 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 a, in a crane. Right. But never uh, flew uh, from the ground on its own in the air without any connection to the earth. And I I'm one hundred percent sure. That that is possible. So who who was going to be the the test pilot? Who will fly it? Uh, Andre Schulpen will be the test flyer, and he is always uh, he will always be the the only one who uh, gets permission from me to fly it. This is a friend of yours at the gliding club. Yes, a friend of me, and he is uh, very fond of the K eight B. He has uh, several of them and has uh, many, many, many hours of experience in that plane. So there's, in my opinion, in this moment, not a better pilot than he to, to fly the KH-8B. Well, that's very exciting. I do hope your, your stained glass flying glider art project, the K-8, actually is able to take flight. Do you, you, do you think it'll happen in 2023? When do you think it might happen? Yeah, I think uh, I, I think it might happen in 23 because now it's winter, but the the summer uh, will be uh, okay. I will I, I ask permission, and when the Dutch uh, uh, authorities don't give a permission, I probably will try it in uh, another country. <laughs> well, you've got a lot, a lot of choices living in Holland. I mean, you could go across to Germany, no problem. So, well, yeah, Tom, this is it could be. It's very exciting. Uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, having you let me know that it's actually taken flight. I'll put some pictures up on uh, the the Facebook page for the Thermal Podcast so people can actually look at your glider. Um, before I let you go, talk to me a little bit about your, your own gliding experience and where you fly. 
Um, I started flying when I was uh, 61. Um, and I was uh, a slow starter, a slow uh, student. Uh, there was not uh, a hurry in me to 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 fly uh, as soon as possible alone. So I took a long way in uh, Lemelenveld in Holland with the Aero Club Saland. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there was only uh, starting with uh, 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 a tow. Uh, uh, how is it called in English? Well, were you uh, winch uh, launching or aero towing? Yeah, yeah, winch winch launching. Okay, yeah, and I won't. I wanted also to learn to fly with an airplane uh, pulling uh, the glider. Yeah. So I went to uh, Hoogveen in uh, Drenthe in Holland. And there I made, after several years, my solo flights. Oh, that's a great achievement. And, and you're still flying today. I, I, I know you told me just before we started this interview that you've now you just fly dual flights, right? Yes, I, fl- I just like dual flights. Yeah. So, Tom, thank you very much for telling me about your stained glass K8. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing from you in 2023 that it's actually taken flight. So thanks again and take care. You're welcome. Thank you. Tom Bomber spoke to me from Lemela, the Netherlands. If you check out the Thermals Facebook page, you'll see photos of this unique glider. That's it for episode number 35 of The Thermal. I will be back again in December with another episode just in time for the holidays. I'm planning on chatting with an expert paragliding pilot to understand how our fellow aviators do their thing. If you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering The Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.